0: morning everybody. Morning. For those of you who are new here, I'm uh, Chris Dirks. I'm the main teaching pastor here and this is my last one before holidays. We're leaving tomorrow night. So uh, <laughs> you're excited because I'm leaving? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so I'm going to be gone the next couple of weeks and uh, maybe I shouldn't say anything next year <laughs> when I'm going. But uh, we're, we're in this series now on uh, Sermon on the Mount working our way through, section by section, verse by verse, through the whole thing. Uh, obviously, we'll take a little break, uh, although next week I think Pastor Ray will uh, uh, preach on a section of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, but he, always, he can change his mind whenever he likes, he's the boss. Uh, after that, uh, Stefan is going to do a, a, a message on uh, following up from that joy message he did a couple of uh, months ago. And he's going he's gonna to do a practicum with you guys right here in the services that's going to be spectacular. So uh, you're going to have a blast. But then uh, anyway, after that, I'll come back and we'll keep going. So far in this series, this will be part three. We've gone through the Beatitudes. Uh, last week, we, we uh, went through the, the section there on salt and light. And uh, this, uh, this morning now, uh, I'm going to do verses 17 to 20. And uh, it's a little bit of theology. I mean, in fact, the whole sermon amount uh, hinges how we take the rest of it. The rest of it after this section now is purely practical. Uh, the very next section after what we're looking at today is about anger and then there's lust and, and promises and divorce and prayer and worry and finances. You know, It just covers it. The Sermon on the Mount is intensely practical. Um, but today we have to do a little bit of theology first. The section we're going to look at today, the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount, how we take it hinges on how we interpret and understand the four verses we're going to look at today these are four verses that are often misinterpreted, uh, and people take them wrong, and people read things into them that they shouldn't, uh, and in fact, you know, for many of us here, if you're here at Southland, I mean, it, the Sermon on the Mount seems kind of simple. We often have, have, uh, have used passages from the Sermon on the Mount in many of our messages. It just seems pretty simple, like you just put it into practice, but, if, but uh, the thing you need to realize is that a lot of Christians today in popular Christian culture don't believe the Sermon on the Mount actually applies to Christians today. There are, there are people, they're selling lots of books, they preach on TV, they have big churches, they actually teach that the Sermon on the Mount is not applied to us under the New Covenant anymore because Jesus preached it uh, before He died on the cross. And I mean, it, that is crazy, actually, and I'll show you why today, but it's important that you kind of know that. Today we're going to look at a little bit of theology, and then at the end of the message what we're going to look at is a little bit of, of sanctification, how Jesus works His holiness Uh, In us, which is really important. And so I'll just read the passage and then we'll pray and we'll get into it. Verse 17, "Uh, do not think, Jesus said, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll break this down piece by piece. Lord Jesus, we call you Lord because you are Lord. King, creator of the universe, sovereign over everything and everyone. And so Jesus, we read your words. We recognize that your words are eternal and your words apply to us today, and they give us life as we obey them. And so I thank you, Jesus, for this message. I thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, which actually paints this picture for us of what kingdom living looks like, and it's wonderful. It's our joy to obey you. It's not a burden to obey you. It's our joy to obey you. It's freedom to obey you. And I just pray that today as we look at this, Lord Jesus, I pray you give us a better understanding of who you are, and the relationship between you and the Old Testament, and also how you work your holiness and righteousness in us. In your name we pray. Amen. Starting with verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is a very important first statement here as we head into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Already in Jesus' day, many people today, we've talked about this. I did a whole series on the law uh, three years ago. You can can, uh, check that out online. Uh, anytime you want. Very important about the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. The fact that we still need to obey the laws that tell us right and wrong from the Old Testament today. Because many Christians today believe that Jesus did come to abolish the Old Testament laws. That the Old Testament laws no longer apply to us. And already back in Jesus' day, people were thinking this. All right, Because Jesus was seen as a radical. He was opposed to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees loved the law. They were all about the rules. And they, in fact, they added their own bunch of do's and don'ts to the rules. And so people in Jesus' day already assumed that because Jesus was against the Pharisees, they assumed that he was against the law. And so right from the very beginning, right at the beginning of his ministry here at this, in this very important sermon, he has to lay it straight. He says, do not think. Shocking that so many Christians today ignore this very clear sentence. Do not think I have come to abolish the law Or the prophets, all right? And then he says in the next line, he says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And this is where the arguments start, okay? The first part of the sentence is very clear. A lot of people just ignore that because it is so clear. You get to the second one, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And this is where many, uh, you know, theologians and, and preachers and Christians disagree. What did Jesus mean when he said he came to fulfill the law? And what many people teach today is that Jesus fulfilled the law in the sense of he obeyed all the commands perfectly, which he did. He was perfect. He was without sin. So it's certainly true that Jesus obeyed all of the laws perfectly. He obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly. He obeyed them in spirit. He obeyed them in action. He obeyed all the laws of the Old Testament perfectly And so that is true, but how a lot of people take that today now is they take this sentence, they say, he fulfilled the law in the sense that he obeyed all the laws and the commands, and now by doing that, he completed them. It's sort of like you read a book. Uh, I love reading my kids' stories at night. I love reading my kids' books. And you read through a whole book. When you get to the end, you're finished. It's completed. It's fulfilled. You shut the book. It's over, okay? It's completed. And so how a lot of Christians take that sentence there today is, Um, is he fulfilled the law in the sense that he obeyed it all, and now it's kind of like a book. The book's over. It's closed. The law has been fulfilled, and it no longer applies to us uh, under the new covenant anymore since Jesus died, okay? And uh, now the thing you have to realize, though, is the law is not like a book, okay? The law is not like a book that you read through it, and once you get to the end, you complete it. It's done. It's not like a video game where someone can complete level 1 give everybody else the password and everybody else starts on level 2 the law is made up is like an eternal signpost that tells us the things that make god happy and the things that make god mad that tells us the things that hurt us and the things that are good for us do not murder okay Jesus obeyed that one perfectly. It doesn't mean it doesn't stand for us still today. Do not murder still stands for us today as a signpost telling us God doesn't like this. This isn't good for you. Jesus didn't complete it. The law isn't a book that you just complete or fulfill by one person obeyed it, and now it's over. And and so what you'll actually hear some people say, and it sounds so spiritual, and that's the thing about half-truths. The half-truths that get the most people are the ones that sound the most spiritual. And so you'll actually hear people who who believe this, that Jesus fulfilled the law in the sense that he obeyed it and now it's completed and it's over. It doesn't apply to us anymore. You'll hear, hear people say things like this, and I've heard it many times. They'll say things like, Jesus obeyed the law for us. Now doesn't that sound so wonderful? Jesus obeyed the law for me. He obeyed the law for you. He obeyed it perfectly. He obeyed it for us. Well, again, how does Jesus obey something for you? Did you know it's actually impossible for anybody to obey something for you? It's even impossible for Jesus. Jesus can't obey something for you. You have to obey it. For example, um, there is a physical law that if I turn on my hot stove element, and if I put my hand on the stove element, it will hurt my hand badly, okay? Now imagine someone comes along and tells me, um, by the way, Jesus obeyed that law perfectly. He never put his hand on a burning hot stove element. So now that law is fulfilled in the sense that it no longer applies to you. Well, let's fire up the stove and find out. How does Jesus obey a law for me? The law is not something that someone can do for me. It's just a signpost that says, this will hurt you and this this will help you. This will make God mad. This will make God happy. That's all the law is. Nobody can obey that for you. It's sort of like someone telling you uh, that Jesus could eat for you. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for eating that steak for me. (laughs) looks so good. Nonsense. If I want to enjoy the steak, I have to eat it if I want to enjoy the benefits of obeying the law, Jesus can't obey the law for me. He can show me what it looks like to obey the law. He can help me to obey the law by His Holy Spirit. He can help me desire to obey the law. He can give me power, all that sort of stuff. And yes, we need Jesus to obey, to obey His commands. But if I want to enjoy the benefits of not having my hand burned, I have to obey the law for myself. And it, just in case you think that example is a little bit ridiculous, like there's no law. You know what? It's worse to break God's laws than to put your hand. I mean, you talk about adultery. That will hurt you and other people around you more than putting your hand on a stove. The law tells us right and wrong. It's not done. Jesus did not fulfill the law in the sense that he obeyed it all, so now it doesn't apply to us. The law is an eternal signpost. It's not something that can be completed. It's not like a book. It's not like a video game. It's not like a test. It's never something that is completed. It's something that's always there telling us about danger, telling us about right and wrong. Okay. Now someone will say, hey, Romans 6.14, Paul said you are no longer under law, but under grace. Now, that's a verse that gets quoted all the time by people. It's been used for the last hundred years to prove that that God's commands in the Old Testament no longer apply to us anymore. We're no longer under the law. Now, I don't have time to get into that verse in in specific. I talked about that verse at length in that series I did on the law a few years ago. If you were not here for that, you can go online. You can hear it for free. You get it for free, whatever you want. You can listen to it. But let me just show you a couple stories. I want to prove to you because people always go to Paul and they say, we're not under law, but under grace. Then they take that verse, they misuse that verse, they come back to the Sermon on the Mount and say, Jesus fulfilled the law in the sense that he got rid of it. No. So I want to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt. I just want to take a few minutes. I want to show you that the Apostle Paul still believed that the Old Testament law applied to him. And he actually got convicted of sin when he broke it. Okay? So I'm going to show you. We're going to go to Acts 23. I'm going to show you an example. Uh, just to catch up on a story, Acts 23, this is just a few years before Paul is going to be killed by the Romans, okay? He has been arrested, uh, uh, been arrested, and he's going to be given to the Romans, taken to Rome. It's this whole long thing, and then that's where he eventually dies. But before the Romans take him to Rome, he first stands before the Jewish religious leaders, okay? This whole story is happening four or five years after he wrote the book of Romans. He wrote the book of Romans before he went to Rome, because he was, he wouldn't need to write, write to the Romans if he was there, okay? So just, you know, this is after the book of Romans, This is after he wrote the verse, you're no longer under law, but grace, which totally does not mean the law doesn't apply to us anymore. He's talking about something else entirely, which I talk about in that series, okay? But this story takes place, I want to to show you something here, okay? So we catch up with this story. Uh, uh, He's Acts 23, verse 1, he's just about to stand before the Jewish religious leaders. Here's what happens. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. So he loses his temper, okay? He's not perfect. He's not like Jesus, okay? God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And I mean, I would have probably lost my temper too. I probably wouldn't have called him a whitewashed wall. Probably would have been something worse, okay? But are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? So he's mad. And he's standing for the high priest. The high priest says, punch him in the mouth. He says, punch him in the mouth. Paul spews out. He's a little bit angry. Now look what happens next. Verse 4, okay? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. So he's apologetic. Whoops. Okay? So high priest says, punch him in the mouth. They punch him in the mouth. Paul loses it. Hey, you whitewash wall. Calls him a name. And then the guy say, you're going to call the high priest a, hi- a name? And he's like, Whoa. Oh, he feels bad. Huh. I didn't know he was the high priest. Okay, he's apologizing. Well, I didn't know he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul feels bad and he apologizes. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Now, here's the thing. How does Paul know that what he just did was wrong? He's convicted. I didn't know he was the high priest. Okay, and then he feels bad and he takes it back. I wouldn't have done it if I would have known because so why does he feel bad on what does he feel bad you know because because he just you know his conscience just bothered him or whatever no there's a reason how does he know that what he just did was bad well he says why he says for or we could say because because it is written i'm convicted right now because i just there and the reason i'm convicted is because i just did something that goes against what is written you shall not speak evil of the rule of people now where does it say you shall not speak evil ruler of your people is that something jesus said is that something in the new testament no there was no new testament then yet he's quoting guess what an old testament law exodus chapter 22 okay exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. 28 you shall not revile god nor curse a ruler of your people This is a few years after he wrote the book of Romans. People say that Paul says the law doesn't apply to us anymore. Then how come Paul is convicted of sin when he breaks an Old Testament law? He clearly believed that breaking the laws of the Old Testament, the laws of the Old Testament still applied to him. And when he broke one, he felt convicted of sin and repented from the Old Testament. I can show you a bunch of examples like this. Let me show you another one, real famous, one more. Ephesians chapter 6. This is every parent's favorite verse. It's the first one we should all teach to our kids. Ephesians 6 verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Okay? Honor, now there's quotation marks, honor your father and mother, brackets, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So Paul says children need to obey their parents. In fact, they need to honor their father and mother. Now, how does Paul know that kids should honor their father and mother? Does he say you should do that because Jesus told us to do it? No. Does he say you should do it because under apostolic authority, this is what you should do? He does that elsewhere in the New Testament. He says you should do this because I'm an apostle and I'm telling you to do it. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he says you should do this because Jesus did it. But here in this case, he doesn't say it's because of Jesus. He doesn't say it's because of the New Testament. Why does he say, how does he know? On what authority does he tell us that kids need to honor their father and mother? Well, it's under, it's under quotations. What's he quoting? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the, one of the Ten Commandments, the fifth one, which is the first and only one in all of the Ten Commandments that has a promise with it. And he says, in Exodus 20:12. here's what he's uh, uh, um, quoting, and you can just see it. I'll put it up there so you can see them side by side. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Guess what? Did you know that the book of Ephesians was also written after the book of Romans? The book of Ephesians was one of the last books Paul wrote before he died. Right to the end of his life, Paul believed that the Old Testament laws still had authority in our lives today. When he broke them, he he repented. He felt bad and repented. When he was teaching people how to live, Christians under the new covenant, he used Old Testament laws and said, this is what you need to follow these. They still have authority. Okay? So if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus. So, but people, what they do is they misinterpret Paul. They take Paul to be saying he what something he isn't saying. And again, I don't have time to get into all that. I did a whole series on Paul and the law. But they take Paul to be saying something he isn't saying. They take that back to the Sermon on the Mount, and then they interpret Jesus to be saying that he fulfilled the law in the sense that he obeyed it all, and now the book is closed and it's over. Jesus did not obey the law in the sense or uh, fulfill the law in the sense that he closed the book and it's over. Okay. So in what sense? Did Jesus fulfill the law? If he didn't fulfill it in the sense that he closed the book and the commands no longer apply to us, how did he fulfill the law? And of course, for those of you who are new here, obviously the sacrificial laws all gone, right? But the laws about right and wrong. Those are what we're talking about here. We don't sacrifice, we don't do the ceremonial ones, circumcision, all that sort of stuff. That's also talked about in the New Testament. But in which way then did Jesus fulfill them? If he didn't cancel them, if he didn't fulfill them and complete them, how did he fulfill the law. Well, the thing you have to understand is, a lot of people think of the Old Testament as just a bunch of do's and don'ts. But the primary purpose of the Old Testament is not to give us a bunch of do's and don'ts. The primary, absolute primary main purpose of the Old Testament is to point us to Jesus. That's the whole, from Genesis to the end of Malachi, the primary purpose of every verse and every chapter and every book in the Old Testament is to point us to Jesus. So, what you'll find in the Old Testament is, you will find hundreds, literally hundreds, of prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. Some of them haven't been fulfilled yet, they'll be fulfilled at his second coming. But it's not just the prophecies, it's everything, it's even the stories and the laws. Did you know that all the stories in the Old Testament are meant to point us to Jesus too? Those stories are meant to first of all point us to our need for a savior, but they also, those stories in the Old Testament actually explicitly point to Jesus in hundreds of ways. For example, there's a story of Abraham sacrificing his only son, Isaac, in terms of only son of the promise, on top of Mount Moriah, right? And people go, what was that story all about? It was, he was acting out what God the Father would do with his only son on that very same mountain when he sacrificed Jesus on a cross. See those stories, the Old Testament stories. How about Jonah? Jonah goes into the belly of a whale for how long? Seven days? Five days? One day? No. Three days and three nights. Just like somebody else. Who else was in the grave, right? Jesus was in the grave for three days, right? So all the stories, we go over and over. God fed the Israelites with manna, okay? And he gave them water from the rock. Paul talks about that later in Corinthians. He says all that was to symbolize Jesus. All of it, manna, was to symbolize that we need the bread of life every day, just like we need Jesus every day. Everything in the Old Testament, the stories and the prophecies all point to Jesus. Even the laws themselves point to Jesus. I mean, we can look at hundreds of examples. Leviticus 16, Leviticus chapter 16, just one quick example. Leviticus 16 uh, is this one law that the Israelites had where every year, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats, okay? He would take two goats on the Day of Atonement. They would slit one goat's throat, and that was blood to atone for the sins of Israel, okay? Now, what is that symbolizing? Obviously, Jesus on the cross is atoning for our sins. What they would do with the second goat is the high priest would symbolically place his hands on that goat's head and symbolically transfer all the sins. And you can read this this week if you want. Leviticus 16 would, would symbolically transfer all the sins of Israel from that year onto that goat's head. They would take that goat out into the wilderness somewhere and abandon it out in the wilderness, okay? That's, by the way, where we get the whole term scapegoat from, okay? And what was that symbolizing? That goat was taking the sins of Israel, burying them, and taking them away, taking them out far away to the wilderness that they didn't have to bear their sins, just like Jesus does for us. And we can go through example after example after example after example after example. The entire Old Testament points us to Jesus. So the Old Testament has multiple roles. The primary role is to point us to Jesus. Another big important role is to tell us the difference between right and wrong. Now when Jesus says he fulfilled the law and the prophets, which one is he talking about? Is he saying I'm getting rid of the right and wrong? No, he's saying... The whole Old Testament pointed to me, and here I am. Okay? I can show you. He says this. John 5, 39 to 40. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament. You search the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Old Testament, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. Okay? How about Luke 24? Luke 24, 27, Jesus does a Bible study with a couple of disciples after his resurrection, and I can hardly wait for the day. I, I long for the day when Jesus is going to come back to earth, and I want to do a Bible study with him. Wouldn't that be amazing? But Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so this is a long Bible study, all right? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, speaking of Jesus, interpreted, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus Jesus said, the whole Old Testament points to me. Everything, the laws, the stories, everything points to this Savior, this Messiah that God was going to send, and here I am. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. I'm the one they're pointing to. So he uh, he didn't fulfill the law in the sense that he obeyed it, and now it doesn't apply. He fulfilled the law and the prophets in the sense that the law and the prophets all point to him, and now here he is. Very important how we understand that and that we understand it Correctly. Well, let's keep reading, verse eighteen. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, uh, the thing you have to understand in order to understand what Jesus is talking about here, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Um, the, the Hebrew, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, okay? The New Testament is written in Greek, okay? So now when Jesus talks about the iota and the dot, he's referring back to the Hebrew scriptures, and the Greek word there for iota is the Greek word for the, for the Hebrew letter, uh, iota, okay? Iota, you can kind of think of it like that, but anyway. Um, iota, and uh, iota is the smallest letter. So if you read the Old Testament, you read in Hebrew, iota is the smallest letter letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Then the Greek word there for dot is referring to the punctuation marks on the Hebrew letters. If you've ever seen Hebrew, it's got all these scribbles and squiggles. um, Not to insult any of you here who writes in Hebrew, but it's got all these scribbles and squiggles. At least that's what it looks like to us, right? And it's got all these dots everywhere in punctuation, okay? So the iota is the smallest letter, and the word there, when he says dot, he's referring to the punctuation marks in the Old Testament. What he's saying is, um, for until heaven and earth pass away, which... That hasn't happened yet, okay? For until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter of the Old Testament, not the smallest punctuation mark of the Old Testament will pass away until all is accomplished, okay? Now, when is everything going to be accomplished? When Jesus returns a second time, okay? So part of what he's saying here is never, until heaven and earth disappear, like this will never be turned, at the very least he's saying, not until I come back the second time, like not until everything's accomplished. But certainly, this hasn't happened yet, okay? And so Jesus says, until heaven and earth that pass away, until everything is accomplished, not the smallest letter, not the smallest punctuation mark of the Old Testament will pass away until all is accomplished. In other words, if the Old Testament says something is wrong, it's always going to be wrong. If the Old Testament says something is right, it's always going to be right. Okay? If the Old Testament says something's going to happen, the Old Testament says that the Jews would come back to the land of Israel someday. We're seeing that happen. We saw that happen in 19... 19- 48 it still isn't fully fulfilled because jesus said then a whole group of nations would attack them and after that jesus would come back and rescue them and they would all be saved all of that's going to happen not the smallest letter not the smallest dot jesus is taking a very high view of scripture here isn't he he's taking an extremely high view of scripture and that's very important for us to notice because in Christianity, in popular Christianity today, in our popular Christian culture, it's become very fashionable to undermine the authority of Scripture. So in colleges and seminaries and liberal churches all over our country, it's become fashionable to question the authority of Scripture. So people will say things like, well, that didn't actually happen. I know that the Bible says that story actually happened, but that's actually just a legend. It was borrowed from that religion over there. And that over there, that didn't really happen. You know, David and Goliath, that's more of a myth. It's kind of exaggerated. Uh, there's maybe some spiritual principles there, but it didn't actually happen, okay? Um, you know, that thing that, that it says is wrong over there, well, when the writers wrote that, they didn't know what we know now about, you know, genetics and stuff like that. So we actually know now, I know it says it's bad over there, but actually we know now it's not actually bad. And it's become fashionable to undermine the authority of Scripture, And to say they didn't know what they were talking about, we know more now, that didn't actually happen, that won't actually happen, that was allegorical when it's not meant to be allegorical, and it's undermining the authority of Scripture. In fact, there's a whole movement now, very popular uh, among, you know, what they would call themselves the social justice people, and I mean, I love social justice, love social justice, but ultimately social justice is about Jesus. We're going to have social justice when Jesus is king over the earth. And if you uncouple social justice from Jesus, you get what is our modern-day Christian social justice movement, which is you got these people running around, and they say, you know what? They don't like the Old Testament because it's kind of embarrassing. They don't like the Apostle Paul because, well, he says some things about sexual morality that just don't match up with our culture anymore we'll get rid of him. So actually, we're just Jesus followers. All we take out of the Bible is the Gospels, and they think they're going back to pure Christianity. They think that by going back to only the Gospels, they're getting rid of all the fluff, and they're they're the real Jesus people. They think they're the ones that are really following Jesus and really care about following Jesus. No, you're not. No, you're not. Jesus himself won't let you pit him against the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible. He says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He took a high view of Scripture. He said, in fact, not the smallest letter, not the smallest punctuation mark, and the whole thing will pass away until all has been accomplished. It's all going to stand true. It's all going to stand as being from God, and it's all authoritative right to the end. That's what Jesus felt. So actually, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't split it off and say, I'm only following the Gospels. You have to follow the whole thing because that's what Jesus did not an iota, not a dot, until heaven and earth pass away and until all is accomplished. And then he goes on to say, verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And you know, as I was Preparing for this message and, and praying and, and studying this this week, I just just a shudder came over me. Cause this is exactly what a lot of Christians are doing today. This is what I'm mean, we're not talking about the sacrifices. The New Testament talks at length about those. We're talking about the moral law where the Bible says right and wrong. On issues of morality and, and marriage. And all these different things, and abortion, and, and various things. And, and people are going in now, and wherever the Bible is offensive to the culture, they're like, well, we don't want the Bible to be offensive to the culture, so they're changing the Bible. And I shudder inside, because Jesus said, therefore, whoever rela- relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You have to feel God, Jesus' heart. This is God in the flesh. He's not embarrassed by the Old Testament because he wrote it. Jesus isn't embarrassed about the Old Testament. He's not embarrassed of Paul. He's not embarrassed of the Bible's laws on sexual morality. He's not embarrassed about the Bible's definition of right and wrong. He's not embarrassed about any of that because he wrote it. It's all based on his character. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the final verse in our section for today, but I want to take a, a, a few minutes here because this part too, this whole little section, verses 17 to 20, totally many Christians not, not, not getting it. Okay, So first of all, we looked at He didn't fulfill the law in the sense of he got rid of the, you know, finished the commandments and now they're done. He fulfilled it in the sense of he fulfilled it. It was pointing to him and now here he is. Now we get to this part and people don't know what to do with this verse either. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How most people think this verse, how Jesus is meaning this verse is, they think, well, the the scribes and the Pharisees were really good at obeying the rules. Okay, that's what they think. So what they think is, Let me just show you this progression. It's a progression of three steps. And I'll tell you exactly how I've heard this preached. I've heard this said. I've heard this preached. I'm not making this up. This is common in Christendom today. People don't have an understanding of the commands and righteousness. So they say, well, Jesus is thinking that the the scribes and Pharisees are up here in terms of righteousness. And what he's saying is that in order to get to heaven, you actually have to be better than them. You have to be even higher. Okay? So what Jesus is setting up here is a competition The Pharisees and scribes are really good at obeying the law. You have to be even better. Well, actually, that's impossible. So what Jesus is really saying here is in the Sermon on the Mount, he's making things so impossible that you give up even trying, and now you just have to trust Jesus. Okay? Well, now, first of all, amen, we need to trust Jesus. Love that. Do we need Jesus' help in order to obey and please God? Amen. Do we need the Holy Spirit inside of us changing us? Amen. I love that. It's a half-truth this idea that jesus is setting up a competition here that actually jesus's real motive in the sermon on the mount i've heard this said many times the sermon on the mount what jesus is doing is setting the bar so high that it's impossible that we all give up and we just trust jesus well you know what this actually comes down to we have a totally wrong view of how jesus works his holiness in us okay i'm going to put up a, a a thing there i want to show you two extremes okay on the over-spiritualization, passivity side, it sounds really good, but I get people saying this all the time, and the more spiritual something sounds, often the less true it is. And what you have with a lot of people nowadays is they think, when it comes to holiness and obeying God, it's absolutely impossible to do what God wants us to. It's too hard, we're too wicked, and so what we actually need is we need to stop trying, and we just need to to do it. That's actually an over-spiritualization, it's passivity. Jesus does everything, and I do nothing. On the other side, of course, is trying to please God through pure self-effort, which just leads to absolute condemnation, no relationship. Of course, Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, that's obviously an abuse. I'm not even going to talk about that one today. I just want to hit on more of this one here because it sounds so right to so many of us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, it just sounds so right. He's setting the bar so high that we could never hit it. So we should just give up and trust Jesus. But you know, Jesus does not work holiness in you that way. Not for the most part. I mean, every once in a while he does. I mean, sometimes, I mean, amen, there's testimonies. You know, you hear that guy that got saved, and that day, he never smoked another cigarette in his life. He gets up on stage, hallelujah, I never smoked another day in my life. And all the Christians in the congregation who have been trying to quit for six or seven years are just feeling awful, right? I gave my life to Jesus, and I never thought about porn again, and all the guys who have been battling with it for ten years feel awful. Well, amen, yes, sometimes Jesus plucks it. Gives us a freebie. Plucks one from us. Amen. Hallelujah. We love it. Thank you, Jesus. But you know that's not how Jesus normally does it. Not at all. Imagine this. It's Father's Day today. So dad's mom's here too. Your kid comes to you, right? They have a project and they they can't finish it. They don't know how to do it. Okay? So they come to you, Mom or Dad, I need help with this project. Oh, I'd love to help you with that project. Okay, well, you know, Mom and Dad, it's actually impossible for me to do this project. It's so impossible for me, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to go lie on the couch over there and watch TV while you do the project for me. I'll show you lying on the couch and doing a project for me. (laughs) Okay? That's not how, I'm not going to help you like that, no. Okay? You're going to come here, we're going to work on this together. And as you work at it, I'm going to help you. You're going to grow in skill and character, and we're going to grow in relationship. Did you know it's actually the exact same with Jesus? It's like a bad word. Did you know, in our Christian culture today, effort has become a bad word. Well, amen, pure self-effort should be a bad word. But did you know that effort is not a bad word? Did you know that Jesus actually wants you part of giving your life to Jesus is pick up your cross daily and follow him. It's not lie down on the couch and let him do stuff to you. He wants followers. One of the means through which Jesus releases His grace into your life is as you offer to Him your best efforts. So yes, while you're hanging on to Jesus, you're not doing it apart from Jesus, you're doing it in relationship with Him. While you're relying on Him and calling out to Him, help me Jesus, you're also giving it your absolute all, your living sacrifice, you're giving Him your best efforts. And so you look at some area in your life where you need to, you know, there might be a sinful habit or a character flaw or maybe it's just you want to grow in love or parenting or fruitfulness in ministry. You look at some area and, you th- and a lot of Christians are just like, I just got to not even think about it. Because the moment you talk about effort, you know what a lot of Christians will tell you today? You're putting yourself under the law. You're putting yourself under a curse. I hear that all the time. Oh, yuck. Giving God your effort is putting yourself under a curse. You just got to trust Jesus. The moment you talk about striving... For holiness. The moment you talk about fighting for fruitfulness or fighting for your character or whatever it is and there's Christians out there that will just say, oh, you're not trusting Jesus. That's part of trusting Jesus. It's in the struggle. It's in the intense effort. While you call out to Jesus and rely on Him that His Holy Spirit etches things deep into your heart. We talked about the butterfly and struggling a couple of weeks ago. I was reading um, a true story biography a couple of months ago. Uh, by a guy by the name of uh, Mario Bergner, and he struggled uh, with same-sex attraction and and lived that lifestyle huge for a uh, n- number of years, and then he got saved, and he started to to he started to see he started seeing the Bible. I can't live this way anymore. I can't do this what I used to do. And so he starts to grow and follow Jesus, and he gets this critical juncture in his life where he knows he has to say no to his old lifestyle. He can't he can't do both. He can't keep doing what he was doing and follow Jesus at the same time. And he gets this critical juncture, and there's this, a long weekend comes up, and a bunch of things are happening in his life, and all of his friends are leaving town, he's home, so all of his, you know, accountability and Christian friends and stuff, they're all leaving town for this long weekend. He's not working, he has nothing to do. He knows during these three days of this long weekend, he knows without accountability, without work to go to and be busy, that the old temptations from his old life are just going to come rushing over him. And, And so what happens next it just touched me so deep, I'm like, this isn't just about his struggle, it's about all of our struggles. This just speaks deeply to what it means to fight for something and how Jesus works His holiness in us. It's not an effortless thing. He goes back to his apartment on the Friday and he's like, "I got three days. He takes a band-Aid and symbolically puts the band-Aid, shuts the door behind him, and symbolically puts the band-Aid over the door, said so he can't open the door without breaking the seal. and he said. Jesus, you know that if I go to this apartment this weekend, I'm going to fall back in my old lifestyle. And so he said, I'm giving you one promise here today, Jesus. I will not leave this apartment. And so for three days, oh, that guy had ups and downs. He had, because he, when you're lonely, that's often when your temptations come back the most. Isn't that true? It's in loneliness. You want to fill that hole. And so you're going to fill it with some kind of temptation. And so in the loneliness there, he had some dark battles that weekend. I mean, just where he was hanging on, just barely calling out to Jesus, meditating on Scripture, but he wasn't, it wasn't trusting Jesus in the sense of, oh, thank you, Jesus, take this away from me. It was, but that didn't make it any less trusting. He was trusting Jesus. But Jesus' grace isn't released into your life by you lying around and waiting Him to do magic on you. It's released as you call out to Him and then hang on for dear life. And so he hung on for three days. Some of, the, some just of the, most, the biggest trials is the temptations inside of him, raged inside of him to pull him back into that sin. After the three days, he managed to hang on. At the end of the three days, he took that band-aid off, he went to work. And it wasn't like all of his struggles were over from that moment on, but something, something broke in his life that weekend. He took a major step up in terms of purity. From that point on, for the next bunch of years, it was a constant walk of increasing victory. That's how it works. That's how God's grace is not effortless. Effort is not a bad word. Effort without Jesus won't work. But just clinging to Jesus and imagining that he takes things away from you without you having to fight is also wrong. Jesus wants a partnership, and it's in the fight that his grace gets released in power in your life as you pray and call out to him. Absolutely. Massively huge. It's how sanctification works. You want to grow in freedom from lust. You want to grow in integrity. You want to grow in loving others. You want to grow in controlling your temper. You want to grow in being a better parent. You want to grow in being a better evangelist. Anything you want like that, of growing in character as a person and fruitfulness. You pray to Jesus this week. Many of you are just sitting there apathetically waiting for Jesus to do something, and Jesus is waiting for you to get off the couch and join him. And you're waiting there, you feel helpless, you feel like a victim, like when is this going to go away? And Jesus is saying, we can deal with this right now. And you go in and it's in the struggle as you intentionally and prayerfully go to Jesus and you begin to struggle through this thing that he does amazing changes in your life. It's still him, but he expects you to participate, and that's when he releases the grace. And so the Pharisees, so we go back to the Pharisees. So I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, Jesus is not, what he is not doing here, and what I hear taught all the time, it's why I'm just, we have to get rid of this stuff before we can even get to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, because people have got so many messed up views about what Jesus is saying in this little passage, they don't take the rest of it correctly. What Jesus is not doing here is he is not setting the bar so high that you'll get up, give up. That's not at all what he's doing. He's actually The thing you have to understand with the Pharisees is Jesus did not think highly of their righteousness. Jesus is not setting up the Pharisees like they're this high and you have to beat them. What he's doing throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount is he's saying you have to have a totally different kind of righteousness than the Pharisees. Their righteousness is trash. It's garbage. That is not at all the kind of righteousness I want in my kingdom. The kind of righteousness I want is this. And he paints a picture. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that's what he's doing. He's painting this picture, contrasting. He's not saying it's a competition. You have to pray better than the Pharisees. No, no. He's saying the way the Pharisees pray is trash. You need to pray totally like this. The way the Pharisees do giving is garbage. Don't do that. I want you to do it this way. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. Let me just show you a couple of quick examples, but we're going to find this. The whole Sermon on the Mount is comparing and contrasting. It's not a competition with the Pharisees. It's trashing the Pharisees' kind of righteousness and saying, I want a new kind in my kingdom. So when we get to the part about prayer, which we will get to and do a whole sermon on yet in this series, but chapter 6, verse 5, he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Yuck! It's not that the Pharisees are such great prayers. They're terrible prayers. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I want you to look at this for a second, because people are saying it's impossible to follow the Sermon on the Mount. Is that a real hard command there? Like, oh, that is so hard, Jesus. I just can't help myself but going off praying in public all the time. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Jesus isn't setting a bar so high that you give up. He's, he's, he's painting a picture for you of kingdom living, and it's wonderful. Don't you want that? It's like, here's what life in the kingdom looks like. Here's, it's not, oh, look at the Pharisees. They're so good, you've got to be even better, but actually that's impossible, so just be depressed and do nothing and trust in me. No. The Pharisees, yuck. Pray, it's you and the Father. It's a relationship. Don't do it for show. Just be the real thing. Oh. He does this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's a contrast. How about on giving? Matthew 6, 2-4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. I love, I love Jesus. He just, he's speaking. You know, that's what these guys are doing, basically, right? Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do. He's not putting the Pharisees here and saying, you got to beat them. What they're doing is, ugh, pathetic. Okay? That they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And of course, we'll develop that generosity one in a message as well. My point here is just to show you that the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't trying to put a heavy burden on your shoulders and say, beat the Pharisees. He's saying, trash! That outlook on spirituality, this is what kingdom life looks like. And it's not impossible. You're not supposed to read the Sermon on the Mount and go, that's impossible. You're supposed to read the Sermon on the Mount and go, I want that. Jesus, let's do it together. You're supposed to read the Sermon on the Mount and go, oh, oh that, that is amazing. I totally want to live that. I totally, why would I want to live in lust? It's not do's and don'ts. Like people say, oh, it's so impossible. Like, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not allowed to lust anymore. Right? You, you want to lust? How do you feel after you lust? You feel good. You feel happy. You feel pure you feel wonderful. No, you don't. You feel like death. It's yuck. The Sermon on the Mount shows us a different way. You don't have to be bitter. You don't have to be angry. There's a kingdom way of living. It's not impossible. It's wonderful. We do it with Jesus. Kingdom life. Sometimes it'll be hard and we'll have to give some effort, some Holy Spirit effort, while we hang on to him. But it's a wonderful, wonderful life. You know, there's one other thing that's so freeing about the Because the fact of the matter is, we all have Pharisee tendencies inside of us. We just Pharisee about different things. And a Sermon on the Mount sets us free from that. Because the fact of the matter is, most of us, deep down in our hearts, in our subconscious, we have a picture of what true spirituality looks like, right? And like I said a couple weeks ago, it usually involves comparing ourselves to others. Isn't that true? Like the introvert personalities. You're always comparing yourself to some extrovert, and you think, I'm just not spiritual. You know, that person is always with people. They're up late at night, every night having coffee with people, and they're ministering to people, and they're always in big groups of people. And the extroverts, they feel spiritual because they love those verses where Jesus is with crowds, and I'm always with crowds, and I'm spiritual. Meanwhile, the introvert is with people, you know, one night. they got to take two nights off, Right? Like I gotta have I gotta have a vacation from from work for a couple of days because we had people over last night, right? Because that's just not their personality. But they're comparing themselves all the time to extroverts, think that's spiritual. And then you read the sermon and you find, oh, that's not spirituality. Spirituality is about generosity and loving Jesus and being real with the Father in prayer, and controlling your anger and your lust. Yeah, you gotta love people, it's gonna look different. We have all these subconscious pictures, right? Subconscious pictures of what spirituality is. Oh, spirituality is. I read a biography once of this guy, and he got called to, you know, sell everything, and he moved to Africa, and he just feel like I'm I'm just not that person, or I'm not spiritual because I like to play sports, and I'm, you know, if Jesus could talk to me, he would just, you're wasting your time. You need to be more in constant prayer and fasting. And then you read the Sermon on the Mount, and you go, oh. It, there's none of that legalistic stuff in there. It's none of that legalistic stuff. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached this amazing message of what kingdom life looks like. It applies for thousands of years to any culture, to any age, to any gender. And it's not about all of a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not a burden that you put on. It's wonderful. Jesus doesn't say you can't play sports. He says bring generosity and love and Jesus and purity into sports, into your family into your work. Yeah, some people are going to get called to Africa, but if you haven't been called, he'll he'll get your attention already. He'll get your attention. In the meantime, many of us are called to Steinbach, And the Sermon on the Mount shows us there aren't these preconceived notions of spirituality. Spirituality is actually this wonderful thing. It's joyful, it's wonderful, it's freeing to live it. Yes, sometimes we have to grit our teeth, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have to overcome something. And sometimes it's a struggle that lasts for some years. But even that is freeing because even that in a struggle with Jesus, he does things deep, deep, deep in our hearts. A Sermon on the Mount is absolutely wonderful. It's, it's freeing. And the rest of this series, as we're getting into these specifics now, you're gonna see how amazing this Sermon on the Mount Lifestyle is. And the goal what Jesus is doing in this message is he wants all of his followers. All of us are supposed to live the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. It's there for us to follow it's there for us to obey it's there for us to put into practice let's pray and then we'll worship lord jesus i thank you for this sermon on the mount that sets us free lord jesus these laws are not impossible and burdensome they're wonderful and joyful yeah we need to we need your help we need to be filled by your spirit we need to do it all in relationship with you but i love that you want to do it in relationship with us Jesus, I just pray that this Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, as we go through this series, Jesus, I pray that this lifestyle would take over. This lifestyle of loving our enemies and not holding on to offense, not lashing out in our anger, but that we would begin to live godly, full of light, Sermon on the Mount lives. In your name we pray, amen.